you have your Bibles, be turning with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. More than likely, all of us have had a similar experience. You're running just a little bit late, and maybe it's that cold winter morning. And so you go out to your car, you, you unlock the door, you get in the car, and put the keys in the ignition, you begin to turn it on, and you hear this noise. And the longer you turn the key, the more you realize this thing's not going to start. Not long ago, my son uh, Trey was, uh, got up early to head to school, and he goes out to his truck, and he, he starts the truck, and he had that experience. And so I went ahead and took him uh, on to school, and as I was coming back from um, school, I decided I would slide by a mechanic and have a conversation about what we just experienced. And so I, I told the mechanic what had happened, and the mechanic smiled and looked at me and said in a reassuring tone, yeah, we can take care of it, just bring it on in. And I thought, well, you see, it won't start. Um, hard for me to bring it on in. And then I got to thinking, you know, a lot of preaching and a lot of, lot of religion is just like that. You see, there's no power. Isn't that a problem with what we experience? We get plenty of great instruction. We get plenty of, of great teaching. But a lot of times we're sitting there in the pew and we, we ha we're having this internal conversation with ourselves. We think we just don't have the power to pull it off. And so the preacher stands in front of you and he, he quotes his favorite verse, Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 6, where Paul there says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything. And yet, when you leave church, you're still anxious about school. You're still anxious about your future. You're still anxious about your kids. You're still anxious about what's going on in our world. Or maybe you're sitting there and the preacher decides to quote that verse where Jesus says we're to love even our enemies. And we're sitting there thinking, I have a hard enough time loving those who love me, much less loving those who are opposed to me, loving those who are working against me. We hear all this wonderful stuff in church. We hear all these great teachings. We hear many things about how we're to be transformed and changed and different. And all the time we're hearing those sermons, we're thinking to ourselves, I don't have the power within myself to pull it off. I wonder if that's how the disciples felt when they were meeting with Jesus on the mountain. And when Jesus gave them this, this commission, we call it the Great Commission. Jesus uttered those familiar words in Matthew 28, beginning in about verse 18, where he said, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I wonder, as this ragtag group of common, ordinary people just like us, these folks aren't superheroes. I wonder if they're, as they're hearing about this commission that they've been given to be involved in this worldwide movement to make a difference all over the world, I wonder if they were worrying, well, where does the power come? I don't know that we can pull this off. As I said, we're in Acts chapter 2 this morning. It's the day of Pentecost. It's one of those three Jewish feast days. The word penta means 50, 
So this day occurred 50 days after Passover. And Luke tells us that the disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly they hear a sound. It sounds, as Luke tells us, like the blowing of a violent wind that came from heaven. And I wonder if it was so loud the the disciples may have put their hands over their ears. And they look around at each other as this is transpiring. I wonder if Peter spoke. Peter was always the one who spoke. He was always, always the one who had something to say. Peter may have said, it sounds a lot like a freight train running through the city. And then he realizes it can't be that because trains haven't been invented yet. But when they are invented, I'm, I'm sure it'll sound just like that. You understand this is my interpretation. But this was an incredibly powerful sound. But not only do they hear some things, they, they see some things. They see what appears to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And we wonder, what's this about? Both of these images, wind and fire, are incredibly rich, biblically speaking. Jesus in John's Gospel says the Holy Spirit is a lot like wind. It it blows wherever it pleases. He tells us that in John chapter 3 and verse 8. You can hear its sound, but you can't actually see the wind. You see the effects of the wind, and that's like the Spirit. You don't see the Spirit himself But certainly you can see and experience the Spirit's effects. You see the fruit that's born in life, the fruit of the Spirit. You see a person's life being transformed internally by the Spirit, and they start to look more loving and kind and gentle and peaceful, and on and on it goes. Or you witness a person who suddenly experiences a lot more wisdom, and you wonder, where does that wisdom come from? It's It's an outgrowth of the Holy Spirit. Or you see a person whose life is now disciplined and and full of joy. That's an overflow of the Holy Spirit living in their life. And fire, of course, was present when Moses saw a burning bush and heard a voice. And that voice was none other than the voice of God. Or, Or we see fire when the children of God were were being led. They were led at night, Exodus. 13 tells us by a pillar of fire and john the baptist had previously said that that christ christ will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire luke 3 16 and so now that's that's coming to pass in acts chapter 2 amazing things are transpiring now in luke's other book the birth of Jesus is deeply significant. And in Luke chapter 2, we find a lot of details that we don't find other places that describe and narrate the birth of Jesus. But he tells us about another birth that's transpiring in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of Jesus' community, the birth of the church. And just like Luke 2, Acts 2, we get some details about that experience, that miraculous birth that we don't get any other place the birth of Jesus and the birth of his church. It's a one-time unique event. But now the scene shifts from that quaint upper room. It, It shifts to the streets outside. And the Spirit is already doing what the Spirit always does. The Spirit is gathering together a community. Often when we talk about the Holy Spirit, if we're not careful, we almost make it hyper personal. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we make it so private. And certainly I want to say that 
that I believe that when you come to Christ, you receive an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it is personal in a way. But in Acts chapter 2, it says something about the communal nature of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is drawing together a community, and, and that same Spirit is empowering that community to go out into the world and make a difference. And so we find out on the streets in Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, we find there are God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And each person hears the gospel in his or her own language. The Holy Spirit, you see, is involved in proclaiming the gospel at the very outset. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago, and I still believe it, when the Holy Spirit is in your life, the words of Jesus will be on your lips. That's true. And so the people who hear the gospel are hearing it proclaimed in their own language. We look around that day and we, we see those who were Parthians and Medes and Elamites. There were folks from Mesopotamia and Egypt and Libya, a few from Rome. They were from literally all over the world. And, and now the, these apostles, by the power of the Spirit, they proclaim the gospel in a language they have never spoken. They're proclaiming the gospel so that everyone might hear the message of Jesus. Every time I read Acts chapter 2, I'm reminded that there's a close connection between this chapter and a chapter in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 11. I want to show you what I mean, so, so stick with me for just a moment. I want to show you something very, very fascinating. Yeah, you know, in Genesis chapter 11, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, during that time, the people... Were, were unified, there was one language, common speech. And so the people in Genesis 11, they, they came together to build this tower that would reach up to the heavens. And we wonder, what is this tower? Why were they building this tower to reach up to the heavens? Uh, was it a, a prayer tower? Uh, were they building something to house or maybe help sick people? Uh, maybe they were, they were building a tower that would somehow bring glory and honor to God. That's not what they were doing. You see, they were building a tower in order to make a name for themselves. It was not a monument to the glory of God, but what was happening in Genesis 11 was a shrine to themselves. They were ambitious for their own pride and glory. Now, Genesis 11 is not just some ancient story, friends. Genesis 11, if you read it carefully, it's, it's my story, and, and you might even find yourself in the story. You see, if I'm not careful, I, I love to preach. But if I'm not careful, I could love preaching more than I love Jesus. If I'm not careful, my preaching can devolve into something far less than bringing glory and honor to Jesus. And if you're not careful, you can get busy building a little name for yourselves, busy building your own little tower so that other people might bring you glory. You see, life, and this is the temptation, life can always devolve into smaller, far less significant pursuits than the glory of God and so when Jesus looked at or God looked at all this happening you know what he did he judged their pride he confuses their language and he scatters them he disturbs their community and then one chapter later in Genesis chapter 12 we're introduced to this person this person comes on the scene he's very important biblically his his name is Abraham and what's God gonna do where the people in Genesis 11 said we want to make a great name for ourselves God told Abraham in Genesis 12 I'm gonna make 
your name great. And what what does Abraham do? He begins this process that starts in Genesis 12 and marches through the rest of the Bible. He begins this process where he's going to bring all people back together in unity in Christ. And so what do we have in Acts chapter 2? We have this day when you have all these people, these Jews from literally all over the world, different language groups, different, you know, different cultures in a way. Certainly they were all Jews, but different cultures. And on that day, on that day, the curse of Babel is reversed. On that day, Peter is standing and the rest of the apostles are standing and they're preaching the gospel and everyone hears in their own language. And what do they do? They respond to that message and suddenly there's unity. You see, what is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit brings unity and harmony. The Holy Spirit brings us together. And the move of Scripture from Genesis 11 all the way to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, uh, we see this this great picture of all of humanity gathered together, a great multitude that no one can count. Where are they from? From every nation, tribe, people, and language that's, that's where we're moving toward, friends. And the church should be a microcosm of that. My point is that through the Spirit and through the gospel, we're drawn together in unity and harmony. You know where the first mention of the Holy Spirit in your Bible is? A lot of people don't know this. The very first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Bible, it's not in the Gospels, It's not in Paul's letters. No, it's in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. We're two verses into the Bible. Two verses into the Bible, and we see mention of the Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit doing? Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. The Spirit was working in creation to bring order and harmony out of the chaos and darkness. He did that in creation. He'll do that in a church, and I'm convinced he'll do that in our personal lives if we'll yield to him. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is drawing together this, this beautiful community from literally all over the world. That is the work of the Spirit. But there's one final move of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit draws us together and creates a sense of community. And now the Holy Spirit moves the church from the safety of locked doors and out onto the streets where people need the message of Jesus. The disciples were once timid and afraid behind locked doors, but not now. Where are the disciples? Now they're out on the streets. Now they're preaching. They're proclaiming the good news. But what we need to understand is they don't move out alone in their own power. You recall when Jesus gave them the Great Commission, I quoted the very beginning of this sermon. I didn't, I didn't refer to the very last line in, in the Great Commission. It's so important. Jesus says in the very last line, after he said, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and then at the end he says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now Jesus is about ready to go up to heaven. Jesus is about ready to leave them. He's going to be with them 40 days. Then he's going to ascend up into heaven. So how will he be with us? He will be with us in the power of the Holy Spirit. He has not left us alone to be involved in this mission in our own strength and own power. It's through the Holy Spirit. There are times when I'll read something that's deeply convicting to me. 
This week I, I read this anonymous quote from a, a, a woman who lives in a third world country and she came to the United States, she's a Christian, and she saw what was going on in our churches, how we operate, how we worship, how we do church. And here's what she said. It's amazing what the church in the West has been able to achieve without the Holy Spirit. Now in the South, we call that a left-handed compliment. What did she see? Well, this person saw a lot of great things. She saw a lot of big buildings. She saw a lot of organization. She saw a lot of money being donated. Uh, She saw a lot of short-term missions. She saw a lot of things. But from her vantage point, it looked like a bunch of churches that relied more on themselves than on God through the Spirit. Now that quote has convicted me all week. Because friends, I don't want us to be known as a church that's the most organized. I mean, I'm for organization, don't get me wrong. I don't want to be known just as a church that that has the greatest leadership. I'm for good leadership. I don't want to be known as a church that has the most inspiring worship assemblies. I want to have worship assemblies that are inspiring. I want us to be known as a church that's full of the Holy Spirit. You see, as I read through the latter half of the book of Acts, actually not the latter half, from about Acts 4 on, as you read from Acts 4 on, all these wonderful and amazing things that transpire and occur, I'm convinced are because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so here's here's Peter in Acts chapter 4, and he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin. Remember, he denied the Lord three times. He denied the Lord standing in front of a, a little servant girl, and now... Now suddenly Peter is standing in front of the most powerful people in Israel, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And what does he say in Acts Acts chapter 4? It says that he was, verse 8, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. His courage came from the Spirit. Or in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, in describing that community of believers, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly because they were filled with the Holy Spirit suddenly they had a a newfound sense of boldness and courage and later on when Stephen was martyred for Jesus it says as he was dying in Acts 7 but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God Stephen looked up and he saw the glory of God because he was filled up with, overflowing with the Holy Spirit. I want to be part of a church that's moved, led, empowered, guided by the Spirit of God. What I truly believe, if transformation and revival will take place here, it won't be merely because of our hard work. It'll be because of the work of the Spirit moving through us. We see that. In Acts chapter 2, we see that in the life of Peter, this once timid, afraid fisherman. As I said, denied the Lord three times, and yet now, what does God do with Peter? Peter is standing after, after Pentecost, 
After the resurrection of Jesus, after this incredible outpouring of the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, Peter is standing in front of thousands. What does Peter do? He starts preaching. And what an incredible message it is. And you know what his message was? It wasn't complex. His message rooted in the Old Testament. His message was about Jesus. He said, all the things that you're seeing right now are as a result of the culmination of what, what God told us about in the Old Testament. They're happening right now. His message was about Jesus. You put Jesus on the cross, he said. And I love that line in Acts 2 where it says they were cut to the heart. You know, sometimes we talk about being seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly. And, and I don't want to be off-putting. I don't want to be off-putting to people. But I'm not sure Peter knew about that. But here's Peter. He's preaching this message. It says they are cut to the heart. And then something happened in Acts 2 that I've never experienced before. There have been those moments in my preaching ministry where I've preached my heart out and then I offer some kind of invitation and numerous people come forward. I've, I've had that experience on numerous occasions. But I've never had an experience where I'm preaching my heart out and somebody interrupts me and says, hey, 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 what do we need to do? And Peter said, I'm glad you asked. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, here's what you do. You turn from this old life, this bankrupt life, this empty life. You turn away from that and you turn to this new life. You turn to Jesus and you accept Jesus by faith as seen in your willingness to be baptized. And then once you've been baptized, been immersed in Jesus' name, he says two things happen. One, your sins are washed away. All that past stuff, all that sin that Richard talked about, our sin, my sin, all that sin is washed away, but he said something else. The Holy Spirit will come. I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will come to live in your life, and the Spirit will empower you now to live for Jesus. The Spirit will empower you to speak a word for Jesus. The Spirit will empower you to do the things that Jesus is now calling you to do. All through Scripture, we see the Holy Spirit bringing life the Spirit was involved in creation as we saw just a moment ago in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 where the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. The Spirit was involved in the birth of the Messiah when the angel said to Mary, you have been chosen. And she said, how can this be? I am a virgin. In Luke chapter 1 in verse 35, it says that the Holy Spirit will come on you, Mary. And by the power of the Most High, He will overshadow you. The Spirit is involved in the birth of the church, as we've seen this morning in Acts chapter 2, when thousands of people, 3,000 to be exact, responded to that message that Jesus preached. The Spirit is involved in our new birth. In John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus was a part of the Jewish ruling council. He comes at night. I don't know if he wants more of Jesus' time or he wants to come under the cover of darkness so no one else will know. But he comes to Jesus at night. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Nicodemus asked the question. And Jesus said to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how can I be born again when I'm old? And then Jesus said to him, and in the very next verse, no one can enter the kingdom unless they're born of the water and of the Spirit. Paul, in speaking about our salvation in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, says he saved us. He saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his 
mercy. He saved us, notice, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. As we've already seen, the Holy Spirit is involved in the gospel's proclamation. We see that in Acts 2 as he miraculously empowered these disciples to speak in languages that they'd never previously studied the spirit is involved in our salvation and ultimately the holy spirit is involved in our transformation i guess what really gives me a lot of of hope particularly as i look at acts chapter one and two is i see the transformation that occurred in the men and women's lives there as you read acts one and two you you read about the Lord's brothers. You know, the Lord's brothers earlier, they, they didn't buy into what Jesus was about. In fact, they thought he was crazy at one point in his ministry. And yet now, here are the Lord's brothers, post-resurrection. They're there in the upper room. They're praying. They're different men now. Look around that room, and there's Thomas. Thomas, you may recall, is the one who doubted. Jesus said, as he appeared to Thomas, Thomas said, I, I won't believe unless I see Jesus' hands and feet. And Jesus appears to him and said, here, Thomas, touch my hands right here. We look around that upper room and we see, we see James and John. Oh, these two good-hearted disciples who were constantly wrangling about who was the greatest. They wanted to be, they wanted to have places of importance and significance. But now here they are. In Acts 1 and 2, they're there. And then there's Peter once afraid man who when Jesus needed him the most when, when Jesus could have used a friend it was Peter who not once, not twice but three times Peter denied even knowing Jesus I, I don't know him he said but Acts chapter 2 things are different Acts chapter 2 there's Peter filled up with the Holy Spirit, standing in front of thousands, proclaiming the sweet message of Jesus. And thousands of people respond. And Peter, we know later, history tells us, later Peter himself would give his life for Jesus. So this morning I'm wondering if there's someone in this room who today this morning, right now, as we stand and sing in just a moment, I'm wondering if there's somebody who needs to say, I've never been baptized. I've been afraid to take that step of faith because quite honestly, I, I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I had the power. Well, the good news is you don't. You do not have the power to live for Jesus. But the good news is you come to Jesus not only will your sins be washed away, but you'll receive this empowerment. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will help you to live, live for Jesus the rest of your life. I don't know where you are today.